Hey everyone, before we get started with the show, we just wanted to let you know that this podcast was recorded before the tragic murder of George Floyd at the hands of police officers in America, and well before all these protests started happening, so we just wanted to make sure that we hammered home the point that we aren't trying to be tone deaf or ignore this moment in any way, shape, or form. And we here at Unsolicited Film Reviews stand with the protesters all the way. So, with that said, we're going to move on, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. And I'm Martin Kirk. And today is another episode of our Century Series where we cover 10 films from each decade from 1920 to 2020. It's day 4,329 of the Great Apocalypse of 2020, but we're still here watching movies and podcasting by candlelight as our forefathers once did. You still alive, Martin? Yeah, I'm still alive, and you know, 2020 may suck, so that's why we're going back and looking at the 70s today. Why, why, why the hell not? No, I'm actually feeling pretty good today. The weather is starting to take a turn for the better up here in Canada, and uh, even though we still can't really go out and do a whole hell of a lot, it just feels a little better. So I feel like I'm getting through this all right. How about you? Yeah, it feels like things are slowly but surely starting to ease up. There's kind of soft openings and certain areas beaches restaurants and uh and the like i'm still not physically going to restaurants but oh hell um, no not yet (laughs) (laughs) i'll let other people be guinea pigs first and then i'll see what happens after a few weeks or months of opening so we'll see how that works out and then uh and go from there you know um everybody seems to be kind of uh pulling together in these uncertain times Hey, all you dreamers and creamers out there. Welcome to the 1970s. It's a very cool time to be alive, man. America pulls out of the wasteful conflict known as the Vietnam War. That bastard fascist Tricky Dick Nixon gets what coming to him. And America is short on gas, but long in rock and roll, man. I'm talking Zeppelin, Floyd, Zappa, The Who, Queen, Elton John, and countless other legendary acts rule the radio waves. It's also a really groovy time in the world of cinema, with cats like Scorsese, Lucas, Spielberg, and Coppola all busting onto the scene at the same time. I'd have thrown Polanski in there too, but he's a convicted rapist which totally kills my buzz. But more on that later. What's on the docket for today, dude? All right, I will let you speak in my voice. I'll go back to normal, normal sounding person there. Uh, what we're going to do today, because we're going to add a new segment at the end, so this time the 70s is going to be broken up again into two podcasts, as we've done for the last few decades, but this time we're going to do seven movies up front, and then the set part two is going to end up being only three movies, but then a whole lot of other segment stuff at the end. So, the ten we're going to do are going to be The Godfather, 1972, Chinatown, 1974, Jaws, 1975, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975, Taxi Driver, 1976, Network, 1976, and Rocky from 1976. Those will be the first seven for part one. And then stay tuned for part two, because that will entail Star Wars, 
so big that we almost shifted it to its own new podcast segment. Star, uh, Halloween, uh, 1978, and Apocalypse Now, 1979. The Godfather, 1972. It's the mafia film that started it all. The end-all, be-all of crime dramas. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, based on the novel of the same name by Mario Puzzo. It stars Marlon Brando as the titular godfather, Vito Corleone head of the Corleone Crime Syndicate in New York in the 1940s. A young, fresh-faced, and relatively unknown Al Pacino plays Michael Corleone, a decorated World War II vet who just wants to live a clean and lawful life outside of La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. And you can't say that without doing the Italian hand gesture. James Caan, Richard Castellano, Robert Duvall, John Cazale, Diane Keaton, and Talia Shire round out this all-star cast. It's the first installment of the Godfather trilogy, with the first two being lauded as two of the greatest films ever made. The third one, uh, not so much. This is an epic, epic movie with a ton of characters and twists and turns abound. If this story were told today, it could easily be a 10-part HBO miniseries. A growing trend in this century series is that we could do a podcast on every individual film, and that's never been more true than with the 70s. The listening audience is also bound to be more familiar with the films we cover, so I'll try to keep the synopses as brief as possible so we can move on to the actual discussion. That said, there's a lot to unpack when you're talking about The Godfather. Michael Corleone is a straight arrow with a wholesome American school teacher for a girlfriend. He's forced into life as a mobster when his pops is nearly killed in an assassination attempt. He takes his revenge on a corrupt police official and a rival mobster by staging an assassination of his own. Because of this, he's forced to move to Sicily until the heat dies down. After his brother and heir apparent to the Corleone family, Sonny, is brutally gunned down on the Jersey Turnpike, Michael is allowed to come back to America. He's now embraced his legacy and goes full mobster, taking over the everyday operations of the family while his father enters semi-retirement. Michael sniffs out treachery and plots both within and from without his family. When Vito dies of a sudden heart attack, Michael becomes the official head of the Corleone family. His grip on power is tenuous tenuous at best, though, so he vows to settle all family business. In one of the most iconic sequences of all time, Michael carries out a series of brutally violent hits without getting getting a drop of blood on his hands. He's now hailed as the new Godfather. It was immediately hailed by both critics and audiences at large to be one of the greatest films ever made. It was the highest-grossing film of 1972, and for just a few years was the highest grossing movie of all time. At the 45th Academy Awards, it was nominated for 10 statues and won three for Best Picture, Best Actor for Brando, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Coppola and Puzo. It wasn't without controversy, though. Marlon Brando boycotted the ceremony due to his objection to the depiction of Native Americans by Hollywood, sending activist Shaxin Littlefeather to accept the award in his stead. Al Pacino also boycotted, but for a much pettier reason. He was pissed that he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor rather than Best Actor. Poor little fella. The Godfather currently sits number two on the AFI 100 list, right between Citizen Kane and Casablanca. It also has the number two quote for this bad boy. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. So, Martin, what'd you think of The Godfather? I've seen this movie a million times, and for my money, this probably is the greatest movie of all time. 
I go back and forth between this and Godfather Part Two, and even though they're they're structurally very different, but it's it's a toss up for me. It's it's one or the other. I, I would have added this as an either or question. Uh, basically, what's the greatest film of all time? Godfather One or Two or The Field? But uh, <laughs> decided not to not to have that discussion at that point. But there's just so much that goes into this, and I, I kind of understand Pacino's gripe about not being listed in the best actor category because really he he it is the the film is about him and it's his yeah, character's el- yeah, evolution he is the protagonist and brando is not the major player even though he was obviously the biggest name at the time so i kind of understand that gripe a little bit it's just so filled with with um, amazing characters and the world is just built out in such a realistic way that I'm not sure that we're going to see another movie come along exactly like this. Just from the opening scene, I mean, think about that opening scene alone. Well, I mean, it's more more than a scene. It's an event where there's a million different things taking place and it's 27 minutes long. But just think Mm -hmm. about how brilliantly they introduced the world all the important characters, their relationships to each other, and what kind of individual personalities they all have. It's just incredible. Like, take, for instance, the just the tiny little thing about the FBI staking out this wedding. Right? In just mm-hmm. a 30-second bit, you learn from that how important the family is, that it, they've garnered this much attention from the FBI, that they're involved in serious criminal activity, and also that the oldest son is an impulsive, uh, violent, hothead asshole. <laughs> so <laughs> all of that, that opening scene just sets it up perfectly and tells you so much about what the rest of the film is going to be. Yeah, exactly. And I, I have to agree with you. I think this is the greatest film ever made. It took me a while to understand it. Not not this time around, but I've also seen this a dozen times at least. But um, like I said, there are so many characters to sink your teeth into and so many different twists and turns that it's kind of hard to get a, a foothold on it in the first one. Like, you know, the the main players, you know, you know Michael and, you know, Vito and Sonny. And, but there's so many... Uh, ripples underneath that you really want to get into and that's why i think it would have made a great 10-part miniseries if you know everybody was still around and in their prime but uh yeah like that that opening scene was great but that opening shot is probably the best in film history too uh just uh um that that undertaker I believe in america <laughs> i mean it sets out it's the, an amazing uh, the speech whole, to, to open a yeah. film yeah the entire premise of the film is laid out in that one speech, but you don't realize it until you watch that film. It's not like, this is what the film's going to be. About, exactly. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Exactly. And that slow pullout, it's, I think it's almost four minutes long, and we don't see Vito's head until at least a minute and a half, two minutes in. That slow, slow pullback, and you know that little tiny gesture that he makes for the for the liquor to come to calm him down he never says a word until the undertaker is completely done talking and then we finally get a shot of Vito Corleone and 
Yeah, I can't say enough about this one. It's also in that, not to go on so long just about the opening, because yeah. <laughs> that'll take us two hours right there, but think about how they introduce Michael. I mean, people are talking about him all sort of throughout the wedding. They introduce that he's so important to his father, who's already been shown to us as the big important player in all of this, and yet Michael is so important, before we even see him on screen, that uh, Brando's character won't take the the family picture without him that he's kind of staring out the window pining for his son as his son appears Mm -hmm. it's just incredible he really is the golden child and then from there we're introduced to michael's point of view through luca brazzi in a way and mm-hmm. uh, over time, as I as he said, the first time I watched it, oh, that Luca Bratti is kind of a funny character. But watching it over and over again, you realize how important he is to the story in a couple of different ways. The first is is as an introduction for Michael because it's through him that Kay starts asking Michael about, oh, that's a really scary guy there, and then you find out about the family, and Michael has the the quote that, well, that's my family, Kay, that's not me. But then. Later on in the film, because we've heard these stories about Luca Brazzi, he's basically the embodiment of violence, right? So mm-hmm. that after that meeting with Salazzo, when the Don calls him into his office and he just slides in with that great close-up, you know shit's about to hit the fan. Like, you know something's about to go down. You know, If it's the first time watching it, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But just seeing him foreshadows violence. Uh, and so I just I gained over time and repeated viewings. You just gained such an appreciation for even bit characters like Luca Brazzi and how they use them. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people know this, but a, a funny bit of trivia about the guy that played Luca Brazzi is that he was actually involved in the Italian mafia. He wasn't a professionally trained actor in the slightest, but uh, Coppola just loved him for his look, which is understandable, and he wanted to give that air of authenticity to the film. But... This guy was so nervous about doing a scene with Marlon Brando that he just kept flubbing his lines over and over and over again. But Coppola actually went with those takes because he was supposed to come off at this, as this kind of buffoon, even though he is the embodiment of violence. So that's just a, a testament to Coppola's ability to just kind of roll with it, which we'll get into much greater detail in. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> No, it's just, there's just so many things. It's hard to go on uh, for too long about this movie. But even that little part, again, Michael being the most important character in this entire movie, and really at its heart what it is, it's a character study of Michael Corleone. And that little part at the hospital when after the guys have come to, or they've come to kill his father again and the baker's standing there and they're shaking like a leaf and they're standing Mm -hmm. on on the steps and Michael helps him light his cigarette And then Michael looks down at his hand, and he's almost sort of surprised himself to discover that his hands are perfectly still. And that's sort of a turning point for him. Just little bits like that and the turning point moments in his character are also what make this movie so great. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that hospital scene, too, because that happens about an hour into the movie, and Michael doesn't really become the main character until then. That's true, yeah because we're so focused on Vito and introducing all these different characters. But once Michael does make that decision, and that is his kind of turning point, then we focus on him throughout the rest of the movie, essentially. I think Brando's only in a a 
couple of key scenes after that because he's comatose for a while, then he's in recovery from his gunshot wounds, then we get the scene with him and Michael, which is another just oh, phenomenal acting oh, scene. Oh, the I never wanted I this he for you, been Governor Corleone, yeah. Senator Corleone. Oh, so good. And so heartbreaking, too. Yeah, oh, I know. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, and then his death scene, and then it's back to Michael again. Yeah, as I said, we could go on and on about this movie, and I'm sure lots of people out there have already watched it, but it would have been impossible to do a a podcast on the 70s without mentioning it. And also, I guess we both agree on this, it is the greatest movie of all time. But we would would be remiss without mentioning John Cazale, the guy who played Fredo. Yes. And the fantastic actor that he was, and the tragic death that he suffered due to lung cancer in 1978 and he could have been one of the greatest actors of all time listen to this is his filmography in the 70s alone the godfather parts one and two the conversation dog day afternoon and the deer hunter (laughs) that's unbelievable yeah that's basically his filmography and then so he's batting a thousand basically Yeah, incredible. Yeah, and uh, and he was dating Meryl Streep, so I guess really? talent I I at that. some point. Yes, Meryl Streep was with him all the way through his illness, and she was holding his hand as he died. Oh wow! Yeah, so in some yeah. cases, I guess talent is sexually transmitted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, he was like the actor that could have been. I mean, everybody knows him as Fredo, but he could have been like the uh, the Claude Rains of his day. He was just such a great character actor. He was never going to be a leading man because it was kind of like squirrely, weaselly looks, but he was just so, so good at what he did. Yeah, and not to diminish the work of everybody else in this movie, too. Uh, Diane Keaton and Robert Duvall and James Caan, and it's just a, a, an incredible cast as well. And Coppola got the best out of everyone. All right, so let's move on then to our next movie, Chinatown. Chinatown is a neo-noir film by Roman Polanski that opened June 20th, 1974. The film was produced by Robert Evans, one of the most successful but also scandal-ridden producers in Hollywood history. At the time, he was coming to the end of a seven-year run at the, at the head of Paramount Studios, where he had completely turned around the fortunes of the company, making it the most successful studio in Hollywood at the time on the strength of movies like The Godfather. However... Evans thought that he was underpaid, and, you know, after bitching about his contract, he was looking to step down and start producing movies on his own. And the success of Chinatown sort of allowed him to do that. I mentioned his scandals. Among other things, he was married seven times, was possibly involved in the murder of his co-producer on the film The Cotton Club, and was convicted of cocaine trafficking in 1980. So, uh, yeah, he was kind of the archetype of the bad boy Hollywood producer. The film was directed by Roman Polanski, himself obviously no stranger to controversy, considering that he was married to Sharon Tate and she was pregnant with their baby when she was killed by the Manson family, and also because he's been unable to return to the U.S. since 1978 because he fled the country from sentencing after being convicted of drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl. Anyway, jeez. Enough said about that. Uh, that's better. So compared to those guys, the star of this movie, Jack Nicholson, is a fucking choir boy. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholson, by this time, was becoming a huge star and well-respected actor. Since his breakout role in Easy Rider, which we talked about on our last podcast, he had been nominated for two other Oscars for five easy pieces in the last detail. 
The writer for this film, Robert Town, became the most, one of the most widely acclaimed screenwriters of the 70s. He got his start writing for legendary B-movie director uh, and producer Roger Corman, who was also responsible for launching the careers of numerous other Hollywood heavyweights, including Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese. Chinatown was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, winning one for Town for Best Original Screenplay. It was ranked 19th and 21st on AFI's Top 100 lists, 2nd on the Mystery list, 16th on the Thrills list, Noah Cross is number 16 on the Villains list, the score is 9th on the Film Score list, and also the final line is number 74 on the Movie Quotes list. And that is this, with a little lead-up. What's that? What's that? You want to do your partner a big favor? Take him home. Take him home! Just get him the hell out of here! Go home, Jake. I'm doing you a favor. Come on, Jake. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. So the story. It is set in Los Angeles in the 1930s, and the story is about Jake J.J. Giddies, a sleazy private detective that's hired by a woman to find out if her husband, a public official, is having an affair. Jake follows the man, takes pictures of him meeting with a young girl, but after all that ends up in the papers, the man's real wife turns up to let Jake know that he's been duped. Mad at having been played, Jake begins investigating, and his search for who was behind the deception leads down the rabbit hole to a broader conspiracy about water in Southern California, as well as a disturbing family drama of murder and incest. Zach, dig in on Chinatown. I absolutely love this movie. Um, it's another one like The Godfather that gets better with every time you view it, in my opinion, just because it has such a kind of convoluted plot that the more you, you know, do your research and you know check check your phone and look things up <laughs> as you go, the better. It's another one of those movies that's really made for intelligent people. It's not meant to hold your hand. You're supposed to figure out the plot for yourself. And it took me about three or four times before I really realized how fantastic this movie was and how tight this script was, despite it being kind of confusing at times. But once you really, really comprehend this movie, you realize that it is probably the best noir film ever made. It has all the tropes that you look for. This is the first neo-noir movie that we're covering, by the way. We've done a lot of noirs in the, in the 30s and 40s, but... I think this is the one that took all those tropes that you're looking for from, you know, the Maltese Falcon to Sunset Boulevard and just absolutely nails it. Um, as far as the Polanski thing goes, we're not trying to gloss over it in any way, shape, or form, but I think it's, uh, I think it's important to kind of compartmentalize and separate the art from the artist sometimes, which if you can't do, I totally understand that. I mean, yeah, absolutely. the guy is a convicted rapist. What I mean, what do you do? Yeah, child rapist too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's no justification for that whatsoever. That being said, 
it's an incredible film, and he is one of the greatest directors of all time, unfortunately. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. But we could not leave Chinatown off the list just for that, because that's that's doing a disservice to everybody else who worked on the film, from Jack Nicholson to Robert Town, Faye Dunaway, who all put in fantastic performances without doing any sordid activities that we know of. So I think that's just important to mention. But that being said... I love this movie from top to bottom. Yeah, I agree. It's um, and very good point about about Polanski. There, you talk about how complicated the plot is, and as a mystery, it's really incredible because there's at least three different mysteries going on for for a mm-hmm. lot of the movie. There's sort of who hired Jake in the first place, who really hired him. Was Mulray having an affair? And what's going on with the water? So all these different plots are coming together. And the fact, as you said, that, that Robert Town was able to bring it all together and make it such a tightly scripted plot that it all makes sense and it all falls into place is just really a testament to his screenwriting genius. It was, it's, yeah, it's, it's just really amazing that way. Right, and... Yeah, as you said, the mysteries, you don't even know they're mysteries at first because, you know, we get in, in we get in uh, introduced to the fake Mrs. Mulray within the first few minutes and we're like, okay, this is going to be the love interest or the femme fatale and what have you. And then that turns out to be a complete sham and we don't <clears throat> we don't get introduced to Faye Dunaway until like 10, 15 minutes later at least. And then we don't know what her role is really because we have no idea that whether she's the one that hired him or not. And we don't really find that out until another 20, 30 minutes later. So there's just so many twists and turns in this amazingly well-written script that, yeah, I think it's, I think it's the best written script of all time, in my opinion. Okay. Okay. I think I'm going to have a contender for you a little later on in the podcast, but that's okay. I love how it just dives right in though. Like right away, we're into movies of the seventies now. So we're getting a little grittier and down in the film. And the movie just dives right in with that, with that, that guy looking at pictures of his wife having sex with another man. It just really sets the tone for what this is about, but also the kind of protagonist that Jake is, that he's, a man who's totally comfortable operating the muck and the sordid details of people's lives, that the fact that later on when events kind of overwhelm him in a while, it also speaks to how how crazy those events are that this guy who is so comfortable in that world, it's even too much for him to handle. Jake Giddies is a phenomenal antihero because he so does not want to care like he's already been jaded by previous previous events in Chinatown and he just wants to do his job and be done with it and uh yeah you mentioned the guy in the beginning Burt Young who we'll see again in Rocky so he had a nice career too yeah. and um even that scene comes back towards the end when he needs a favor from yeah. him so every scene connects to another scene parallel in uh, at some point in the film there's no wasted space in Chinatown. No, it's incredible. And I also love all the old L.A. stuff. I mean, both of us having lived in the Valley, well, I guess you still live mm. there. It's it's really hard to imagine a time not that long ago and when there was nothing there but farm and grazing land, but it's just so cool to see a movie kind of built around that stuff. Yeah, just little Mexican kids riding on camels through the L.A. River. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not cam- camels, donkeys. Duck, yeah. <laughs> yeah, L.A.'s growth in the second half of the 20th century really was incredible. I actually have, exactly. a, have a friend who lives 
in um, that house at the end where uh, Evelyn Mulray's daughter is being kept and, and they go, I have a friend who lives just around the corner there. And one time I was over having drinks and he was like, hey, come on, let's go over. And he brought me over and his his friend lives in that house. So I actually got to go in and see that house, which is pretty wow, amazing. Wow, does it look similar at all or is it totally remodeled? Uh, the outside looks pretty much the same. Uh, The inside is kind of hard to tell because you don't really see what the interior is like too much aside from a couple of rooms in the movie. But yeah, it was pretty amazing to just be, wow, I'm in the, I'm in one of the houses in Chinatown. So amazing. That's awesome. And it has one of the sickest, most sadistic twists in movie history too. Actually two of them. The first one being in that house where the whole uh, Faye Dunaway reveal occurs, which let's play a clip of that from here because I'm not going to do a very good Faye Dunaway impression. She's my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister and my daughter. Yeah, when you just find out how sordid and seedy this Noah Cross guy is, that he raped his own daughter, produced an incestuous grandchild, and then, and then at he's the pre- end, basically trying to get her now too. Ugh. Yeah, it's just this cycle of predation and molestation that is just so sickening and he gets away with that's it. yeah i was gonna make that point as well this is definitely a movie that could not have been made even 15 years earlier because because mm, yeah he gets away with it this evil dude takes the granddaughter and he's based the last time we see him he's got his arm around her and he's spiriting her away for more disgusting acts it's ugh, it's unbelievable but it's also true to how the rich and powerful are free to do whatever the fuck they want. Exactly. And it really, again, the whole theme of the 70s, I think, is is going to be very cynical looks at society and, and what's really going on underneath the surface. But not with this next movie. <laughs> well, underneath the surface in a way. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. You know the music, you know the director, you know the shark. Jaws from 1975 is directed by the legend himself, Steven Spielberg, based on Peter Blinchley novel of the same name. After this movie came out, movie making would become synonymous with the word Spielberg. It's the first quote-unquote summer blockbuster, for better or worse. On one hand, movies once again had broad mass appeal not seen since the decline of the old Hollywood studio system. On the other hand, mass appeal sometimes comes with a lack of quality, nuance, and risk-taking. This one kind of managed to balance the two, though, as Steven Spielberg has so often done since. It managed to knock The Godfather off its perch as the number one grossing film of all time after a reign of under three years. This title would change hands once again in the 70s with a little film called Star Wars. You may have heard of it. Jaws stars Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, and Richard Dreyfuss, but the real star is, of course, Jaws who was never referred to by name, but would instill fear in beachgoers for generations to come. I know I didn't want to go to the beach when I first saw this, and I was like seven years old. <laughs> Although there was a great wider on every corner. 
Everyone knows the story, even the few living under a rock that have never seen it. A great white shark terrorizes the tourists of Amity Island. His thirst for blood knows no bounds and kills indiscriminately. Police Chief Martin Brody wants to close the beaches until the threat is eliminated. Uh, makes sense. But the dumbass money-hungry mayor refuses because 4th of July weekend is approaching and he can't afford the loss of revenue. Lives of the tourists be damned. Uh, it sounds like some of these... Uh, Beachside mayors today. <laughs> I was going to say that's some, like, some sort of obvious parallels to what's been going on recently. <laughs> yeah. So Brody, along with oceanographer Hooper and salty old sea dog Quint, form an unlikely alliance to find and kill the shark responsible. They wind up doing just that, although Quint dies in the process. The end. It's a simple story, but damn if it's not effective. It won three Oscars, one for Best Editing, one for Best Sound, and one for the undisputed champion of film composers, John Williams. It's number 56 on the AFI 100 list and second on the list of most thrilling films behind Psycho. Take it away, Martin. The first thing, obviously, that comes to mind when you watch this film is John Williams. And yes, this is the first movie that we're doing with him in it. He had done a few things before this, including big budget blockbuster ones like Poseidon Adventure and then Towering Inferno. But this is the movie that really made his name and, and for good reason. It's just so that opening scene, that first, or not even the opening scene, I guess it's about 17 minutes in, but that first shot from underwater when everyone's at the beach and then when the music is swelling and you, you see it sort of from underwater and what's happening, that is just an incredible shot. It's so good. It's so unique for the time. And I can only imagine what kind of impact that might have had for people in 1975 who had just <laughs> never seen anything like that before, right? I think one right. of the things that stood out to me, I hadn't seen it in a while. And one of the things I'd forgotten about is how much of an issue they make about the fact that Sheriff Brody is an outsider, especially at the mm -hmm. beginning part of the movie. Yeah, the New Yorker. Yeah, and that little detail adds so much to what happens at the beginning of the movie, why he's hesitant to to really state his case and be more forceful in closing things down, while why the others don't really listen to him the way that they should. That I'd forgotten about that little detail, but it's so important to the story, and, and little things like that can really make a difference. Yeah, I think I've only seen this movie all the way through, beginning to end in one sitting, maybe two or three times, just because it's one of those things where you feel like it's always on some cable network. Like You always flip, flip through and catch a couple of scenes of Jaws and then kind of move on. But this is the first time I've really sat down and studied it, and this is a just uh, a clinic in filmmaking, and it, w it won't be the last clinic in filmmaking that Spielberg does, obviously. And especially... Um, the thing I, that, that popped out at me the most this time was how great the character intro was for Quinn with the, the nails on oh, the chalkboard. That's and so amazing. He gives, that, he gives that little pirate speech. <laughs> and he also has one of the greatest monologues of all time for me when they're actually on the boat. And he oh, has, the USS uh, Indianapolis story. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't think we have time to play the entire thing, but I'm at least going to play a clip of it. Otherwise, what, are we, what the hell are we doing this for? You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. 
The ocean turns red, and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. Yeah, it's just fantastic. <laughs> the whole like black guy is like a doll's eyes. <laughs> he just has a, a, such an amazing voice. He's so rugged and manly in comparison to the Hooper character of Dreyfus, and, and when they're comparing scars and stuff like that, and they really have that camaraderie between the three main characters. It, it's a really good character scene. It really is that the three of them when because you're right, they're such different characters. And so that's what makes those scenes on the boat. And really, that's the second half of the movie is just the three of them. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they are such different characters, them playing off of each other as much as them playing off of the shark is what really makes this movie work. Just a couple of side notes. I mean, we've had second generation actors and directors we've talked about so far on this podcast. And now we've got a second generation producer in Richard Zanuck, producer mm. of this movie, who's the son of Daryl Zanuck, who produced stuff, stuff like Little Caesar and Grapes of Wrath and All About Eve, the first two which we mentioned on this podcast. So that's that's kind of interesting, too. We're slowly getting through different generations of Hollywood now at this point. Yeah. And this is probably one of the most serendipitous uh, instances in filmmaking history because the uh, the production troubles are renowned at this point of how hard it was to get this movie made. They were grossly behind schedule and massively over budget. The shark kept breaking down at every turn. But between Spielberg's innovation and John Williams' score... The less shark, the better, because I don't think Jaws would have held up as it does today if we saw that just fake-ass-looking shark through the entire film. It's so true. Yeah, Spielberg has mentioned that basically what it did is it forced him to make a Hitchcockian movie, which wasn't his original intention. But again, speaking to his greatness, the fact that he could adapt on the fly and be able to do that also is pretty, pretty incredible. Right, and like one of the first things they tell amateur screenwriters is you have to show things on the screen, don't tell. But I think that kind of gets flipped when you're talking about horror, especially, because you want to tell, don't show, because the more you show the monster, the less mystique it has, the less it'll instill fear in you, and especially with the evolution of technology, because any movie, any monster that you show 20 years later, it's going to look like shit. Exactly. But I mean, that goes for any horror movie I can imagine. So actually when you're writing horror, young screenwriters (laughs) tell, don't show. (laughs) Getting back to, to Spielberg, he's, he's such a good director and I think sometimes we forget about that because he's been around for so long and uh, people have varying opinions on on some of his movies throughout his career. But a bunch of those shots in that last act in the battle with the shark with the barrels in the water and the stuff flying around the ship and the ropes stretching and breaking, he just captured those shots so perfectly to heighten the tension in those scenes. He's just he's just a master at his craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think he gets underappreciated nowadays just because he's so consistently great. And I mean, yeah, he's had his fair share of duds just like any great director, but he's had a lot more massive hits than he has duds. I'll give him that. That's for damn sure. It's interesting that this is by today's standards going back and watching it. It doesn't seem like a big summer blockbuster movie because for the first half of the movie, especially 
it's really just all about suspense, as you kind of pointed out. It's kind of a, a horror, and it's just that's what it is. But as you said, this really did mark uh, a change again in Hollywood. So just when it seemed like the kind of auteur, new Hollywood style guys like Scorsese and, and everything were starting to make inroads, along comes Jaws and, oh, no, nope, there's the first nail in their coffin already. So already mm-hmm. things are starting to change, even though it was just near the end of the 60s that these guys were starting to become on Vogue. So that's the- uh, <laughs> that's uh, how fast things are starting to change in Hollywood, though. But the great thing about the 70s is that there was room for both. That's true. That is true. And they were all kind of buddies, you know. They were all kind of, you know, in the same kind of circles. They all produced each other's movies. They all gave each other advice. They all had each other over for screeners. And they were all giving each other notes. And that's what made the 70s one of the greatest decades in film history, if not the best. Yeah, especially those four that that were the, are the big ones that people always talk about, uh, Coppola, Scorsese, and Spielberg, and Lucas from the 70s. They all knew each other and were always at the same festival circuits, and they all collaborated and gave each other advice. And that kind of thing is also uh, nice to see. And I guess there there is some of that to some extent now, but it it seems to have lost its... Um, Hollywood just seemed bigger, that that kind of thing wouldn't be as possible today as it was, as it was back then. Oh, yeah, no doubt. All right. And now... For something completely different. Let's move yes. on to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This was the first true feature film by British comedy group and now legends Monty Python. The, they had technically released another film in 1971, but it was basically just a series of sketches from their TV show. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail premiered on March 14th, 1975. So let's talk a little bit about Monty Python. They were a revolutionary British comedy troupe that formed in 1969 that consisted of Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, RIP Terry Jones, who just died in January of this year, and Michael Palin. It's hard to put into words just how monumental these guys are in the field of comedy. They influenced basically every comedian that came after them. John Oliver actually was quoted not too long ago saying that writing, quote, writing about the influence of Monty Python is basically pointless. Citing them as an influence is almost redundant. It's assumed. Mm. So that kind of says it all about how important Monty Python were. So they first came up with the idea for a feature film with their take on an Arthurian legend in about 1973. Uh, Budget was an issue all the way through as they were putting the film together, and they eventually moved forward with a budget of around 200,000 pounds, British pounds, almost all of which was raised by soliciting 20,000 pound investments by 10 people. A number of them famous Brits. Four of the investors ended up being some of the biggest rock bands at the time, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, and Genesis. (laughs) But, of course, Monty Python even managed to turn a small budget to their advantage by making jokes out of it, such as using coconuts to make horse sounds instead of using real horses in the filming. Oh, God. (laughs) 
All right, there's not much even there's not much point even in trying to explain the story of this movie. <laughs> Let's just say that it's basically King Arthur and some of the Knights of the Round Table running around trying to find the Holy Grail, meeting ridiculous characters and getting into absurd situations until they're finally all arrested by modern British 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 police after having killed a historian who was commenting on the film. <laughs> so, yeah, don't even think about it. It's not supposed to make sense. Uh, Zach, <laughs> Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, fuck, man. Uh, I mean, Python is hands down the best comedy troupe of all time. I mean, it's like John, Oliver, like John Oliver said, it's not even worth mentioning, but, you know, we're doing a podcast, so I have to say something. <laughs> it is hilarious, gut-bustingly hilarious from the opening credits with moose humor and <laughs> the writers getting sacked all the way to the final shot. And for a com- comedy always holds up the least as time goes by because, you know, jokes get repeated again and again and again. And, you know, there are, there are people that grew up watching like old school that aren't fans of animal house just because it's kind of a rip off of animal house. But, you know, they go back and watch it. You can appreciate where the jokes came from. This is completely different. And it is all age groups. Uh, my best friend growing up introduced this to me when I was about eight or nine. I've It's been my number one favorite comedy ever since. Uh, every scene is an all-time classic, even though they're only kind of loosely connected. It's like, a, it's like a collection of skits that have this like very loose thread, kind of all comes together in the end, only to completely blow up. There's no sense in the ending. They break the fourth wall constantly. <laughs> They don't have any rules. It's just these brilliant, brilliant guys that uh, just, uh, they are geniuses, man. They are geniuses, and they leave me speechless with their comedic excellence. (laughs) I agree. It's... I'm glad you pointed out the the introduction too, because they don't even let the credits go by without finding an opportunity to be ridiculous. And so, mm-hmm. just right off the bat, we get a sense that nothing here is to be taken seriously. Nothing is sacred. Even the ending, which again partly came about because they didn't have much budget left for the movie, <laughs> but also partly because they just wanted to do something crazy. But it works to just complete the absolute subversive nature of the movie that they're saying. You know, nothing is sacred to the point where even taking aim at the plot of movies themselves while making mm. a movie. It's crazy just how out of the box at for the time these guys were. Again, we might look on it back now and say, oh, there's a lot of movies who've done that kind of thing since. But definitely not at the time. And uh, it's just... Yeah, as you said, just scene after scene of of hilarious dialogue. It basically starts out with this little ridiculous argument right off the bat. So let's have a little bit of a listen to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. We have ridden the length and breadth of the land in search of knights who will join me in my court at Camelot. I must speak with your lord and master. What? Ridden on a horse? Yes. You're using coconuts. What? You've got two empty halves of coconut and you're banging them together. So? We have ridden since the snows of winter covered this land. Through the kingdom of Mercia, through... Where'd you get the coconuts? We found them. Found them? In Mercia, the coconut's tropical. What do you mean? Well, this is a temperate zone. The swallow may fly south with the sun, or the house martin or the plover may seek warmer climes in winter. 
Yet these are not strangers to our land. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. What? A swallow carrying a coconut? It could grip it by the husk. It's not a question of where he grips it. It's a simple question of weight ratios. A five-ounce bird could not carry a one-pound coconut. Well, it doesn't matter. Will you go and tell your master that Arthur from the court of Camelot is here? Listen, in order to maintain airspeed velocity, a swallow needs to beat its wings 43 times every second, right? Please! Am I right? I'm not interested. It could be carried by an African swallow. Oh, yeah, an African swallow may be, but not a European swallow. That's my point. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Will you ask your master if he wants to join my court at Camelot? But then, of course, uh, African swallows are non-migratory. Oh, yeah. So they couldn't bring a coconut back anyway. Wait a minute. Supposing two swallows carried it together? No, they'd have to have it on a line. Well, simple. They just use a strand of creeper. What held under the dorsal guiding feathers? Why not? Just, just hilarious. I, I can't, I can't help but laugh every time I, I hear any part of this movie. But just the setting also is so perfect. I think maybe that's part of what helps it be so timeless in a way. And you can tell that they come from sketch comedy because something like two people talking about the drawbacks and benefits of various political systems. That, that's, that's not inherently funny, of course, but you make them a pair of serfs in a feudal system, and suddenly it's hilarious. Right? I didn't know you were called Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I could just quote this movie for so long. I mean, if, if we just sat back and played every scene of dialogue through this film, I think we could just call our work done. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, from the nice you say knee to the, to the chick who's being on trial for a witch who actually turns out to be a witch because she weighs as much as a, as a duck. Like, that's the yeah, best part and, of that whole bit. Just, she just looks right at the camera after all that. She's just like, come on. It's so good. Oh, man. And, um, it's an interesting theory that I kind of recently came across is that all the, the, all the Knights of the Round Table are actually in modern day and Camelot actually is a model and they are, <laughs> they're like mental patients <laughs> that have been released on an experiment <laughs> and the cops are actually after them and, you know, why not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say this is your, your favorite comedy of all time. I think in some ways, actually, I'd, I'd like Life of Brian better. In some, I think mm. it maybe it's overall a better movie, but definitely this set the stage and set the tone for anything that Monty Python did and really changed the game as in terms of uh, influential comedy. So we, we had to do this one. Yeah, I totally agree that Life of Brian is an overall better film, but this one, it just... It just holds a really special place in my heart. Understandable. <sighs> I want to talk about my Python so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Completely switching gears once more. You can tell how versatile this 70s list is. Taxi Driver from 1976. Not the laugh riot that you were expecting. <laughs> 
It's our first look at both director Martin Scorsese and actor Robert De Niro, who would go on to team up another eight times and counting over the years, the most recent one being, of course, The Irishman. Screenwriter Paul Schrader would also go on to frequently collaborate with Scorsese. Other than De Niro, the film stars Jodie Foster, Sybil Shepard, Harvey Keitel, Peter Boyle, and Albert Brooks. Scorsese himself also makes a really creepy and racist cameo himself. Taxi Driver tells the story of Travis Bickle. In today's terminology, he's the quintessential incel. That's involuntary celibate, for those of you not in the know. He thinks the world owes him everything from fame to sex. He works as, wait for it now, a taxi driver. What? He Shut <laughs> it. <laughs> Never saw that coming. <laughs> he patrols the streets of Manhattan, preferring to work nights and drive around the seedier parts of town. He hates everything and everyone he sees. He has no real friends. He keeps his distance from his parents and has no real goals or aspirations other than to, quote unquote, clean up the streets. What he means by clean up is vague at first as he constantly talks in circles via voiceover narration. He's thrown a major curveball when he meets two girls he feels the need to protect. One is feisty working woman Sybil Shepard. The other is 12-year-old prostitute Jodie Foster. Neither of them want his help, but this creep is bound and determined. After his creepiness becomes beyond evident by taking Sybil Shepard to a porn theater on a date, she, rightfully so, rebuffs his advances. Hold on, hold on. So, porn on the first date, not a good idea? Huh, okay. I've been doing this wrong all this time. Shit, man. (laughs) (laughs) After this, he becomes nothing short of psychotic. He takes it upon himself to become a vigilante, blasting his way through a whorehouse at the risk of his own life in order to save Jodie Foster, who doesn't want to be saved. That's the story of Taxi Driver. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, but failed to bring home the gold. Be that as it may, it has become a must-watch for film fans and ranks number 52 on the AFI list. What'd you think, Martin? It's an amazing examination of parts of society that we hadn't really seen much before in film and not just stuff like seventies porn theaters and prostitutes, (laughs) but also just in general, the people in society that are often forgotten about or not noticed and especially overlooked by, by Hollywood throughout much of his history. So this really was New York city at its shittiest as well. And so that Mm -hmm. more than anything else was what was so new, so new and alarming about this movie when it first came out and it still stands out going back and and looking at it again, all these years later, it still hits you in ways that you don't expect at times. It's, um, I will say as great as a movie as it is, it does drag a little bit in the second half after he gets his, when he first gets his guns, and that's about at the midpoint, and part mm-hmm. of it is because of his character and the kind of character he is, where he doesn't really have a clear goal, and he's a little messed up, and he's kind of going crazy. As you said, he's these circular, circular discussions and arguments about what it is that is, he's really trying to do. So I understand why it happens, and as a, a character, it makes his character stronger, but I think it does slow the movie down a little bit in the second half, but it's still an incredible hard-hitting movie. Yeah, I agree, and it's still so relevant today because these are the kind of people that become you know, the school shooters and the mass shooters at clubs, and 
it's hard not to draw comparisons with Joker that just came out last year. Yeah, Joker owes so much of a debt to to this movie. It's unbelievable. They're essentially the same character. We don't get the voiceover from Joker that we do with Travis Bickle, but I think we know that we already know going in that Joker is a psychopath because, you know, he has been since he was introduced in the 40s. But since we're in Travis Bickle's head, we don't really notice what a homicidal maniac he is until, like, the movie's over and you kind of reflect on it more because he's the protagonist. We're, um, you know, we're trained as movie watchers to root for the protagonist. And, but this guy is certifiable. He really is. And, and it's, again, that's also sort of new. I mean, we've had protagonists in the past that, weren't exactly good people, Fred McMurray and mm-hmm. Double, in, Double Indemnity, for instance, but never really a protagonist quite like Travis Bickle up to this point. It's uh, He really is new in that way. Again, getting back to Joker, you mentioned, it's it's not only the, the story, but they really ape some of the, the style, the camera styles, the, the color palette. They're really using... Uh, Taxi Driver as a, as a template for that movie. Yeah, and the Sybil Shepherd thing is directly parallel to the Zazie Beats thing. Exactly. Where they both think they deserve these relationships just because they're not total assholes to them at the very beginning. And uh, I, hate, I hate to break it to you, but that's not how uh, reciprocal relationships work. Exactly. On Sybil Shepherd, she, young Sybil Shepherd, was just. She was something else. She was so expressive with her eyes. Mm. That scene in the diner when a lot of it is her just just her facial expressions as she's looking back to him and reacting on the uh, uh, to the things that he's saying. She was really incredible at the time as an actress. Yeah, exactly. She was the like the modern woman of the seventies. You know, she could make her own decisions. She made her own money. She didn't have to rely on a man. Like, she was fucking with Albert Brooks the entire time, just kind of, like, dangling him on a string. And, you know, this this weird-ass Travis Bickle guy comes in here, and she's like, okay, you know what? I'm I'm a strong woman. I will go on an adventure and see what this weirdo is all about, and, you know, maybe we'll hit it off, maybe not. It's definitely not. <laughs> but And the first time watching this, she's kind of made out from his perspective to be a bitch mm. but because you know he's like oh no no we can go to another movie you know i'll take you to i don't know much about movies i don't know yeah take you to a oh, disgusting 70s porn theater yeah yeah and, no she's completely you know, in the right the entire time <laughs> yeah yeah you sit back and take a look he's like any sane woman would get the fuck out of there as soon exactly. as possible yeah. She's nice it, enough to give him a date in the first place when he's kind of weird in his first attempt to come on to her. <laughs> yeah, and I think she was just doing that more or less to throw it in Albert Brooks' face because he's so into her and he's so obviously into her that he comes off as desperate. And she's just like, all right, well, I'll go out with this weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> I, but, I think uh, it is one thing that Travis Bickle says is somewhat true, though. She is a little lonely, despite the fact that she's constantly surrounded by people all the time. And I think that is just another example of yet another character populating this world that's 
we don't really look at them closely enough. We see her, she seems bright and successful and everything, but even under the surface there, she's kind of unhappy as well. Well, yeah, as a working woman in the 70s, you kind of had to put that armor on. Yeah. We should uh, maybe talk a little bit about Jodie Foster. It is crazy that she was actually uh, 12 when she was filming this. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it was controversial a little bit at the time, and... And you can definitely see why she she was amazing though as an actress. Uh, 12, oh, yeah. For a twelve year old, I I don't know if I've seen an actress be uh, be that good at that age before. Well, yeah, especially playing a hooker. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, it just yeah, really creepy and controversial for good reason. Yeah, uh, apparently Jodie Foster had to go extensive psychiatric evaluation before playing this role, which is definitely understandable. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she came out with flying colors. In certain scenes, her 16-year-old sister had to play her body double. But, I mean, even a 16-year-old should be in that situation. Yeah, exactly. Well, and apparently Scorsese himself was a little nervous and about this situation. He didn't really know how to direct somebody that young. And mm. so uh, a lot of times, I guess, what he would do is he'd just give the screen directions to De Niro and then tell mm. De Niro to relay them to Jodie Foster. So Jodie Foster later credits De Niro with really sort of guiding her through this whole process and not only on what was happening on that movie, but in just how to become a professional actress in general. And she really credits him with the patience he showed with her during that during the filming of that movie. Yeah, and I want to talk about the very last uh, couple scenes a little bit because... Um, I've seen this a couple times, maybe four or five. Uh, it seems more ambiguous the more I watch it because I'm absolutely 100% convinced now that Travis Bickle dies in the, uh, the in the whorehouse. Interesting. Okay. And the rest is kind of like his fantasy that he wanted to play out because everything is way too perfect. You know, Jodie Foster leaves, goes back to her parents. Their parents, he's all over the newspaper as a hero. The um, the parents write him this extensive thank you letter. Just oh yeah, she's back. She's doing great in school, and you know we love her so much. It's like it's not that easy. This girl is seriously, seriously mentally fucked up. And then uh, you know the one of the very last scenes when Sybil Shepherd kind of makes an advance towards him again, and he's like, no, I'm too good for you now. I'm a hero. It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't, especially that last scene. I I never quite understood the idea behind that scene. But you're right, it makes sense in the context of everything that happens after the shootout is just his, his wish fulfillment in his own head. That that does make mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, so I think that's his like light at the end of the tunnel. Like, you know, they say people see white light when they're about to die. And he even does the, you know, the the handgun to the head. Yeah and pulls the trigger. I think that's I think that's the last we see of the real world and the last 5 to 7 minutes is all just his wish fulfillment. That definitely makes sense. And just in a final note in terms of film having an impact on real life, John Hinckley, the guy who who shot uh, uh shot Reagan, um right. He famously did it in part because he was obsessed with Jodie Foster basically because of this movie and thought somehow, I guess maybe because of the ending of this movie, that this would impress her. And John Hinckley's lawyer even showed part of this movie at the trial as part of his defense. 
So mm. yeah, film can definitely have an impact on on real life, uh, and a film like this on deranged people in real life. Yeah, but the thing is, I think psychotic people are going to find anything they can to latch onto and give an excuse. Oh yeah, for, and that's so. certainly not to ex- assign any sort of responsibility or blame towards Scorsese or anyone involved in the film. Yeah, it's like the stupid politicians in the '90s blaming Columbine on violent video games and shit like yeah, that. So yeah, 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 it's ridiculous. People are gonna find a way to do fucked up shit, and it's not the fault of you know playing Grand Theft Auto or something. Exactly, exactly. All right, let's move on to Network from 1976. This is uh, an MGM produced a satirical dark comedy, which premiered November 14th, 1976. It was directed by Sidney Lumet, who had an amazing and just long and varied career. He was nominated for five Oscars, but never won one, despite the fact that he directed such iconic films as Twelve Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, The Verdict, and this masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Network was written by the great Patty Chayefsky, one of the all-time great screenwriters in movie history. He's the only person in history to have won three solo Oscars for writing. Now, it's hard to put in context how tough it is to receive recognition for writing, in part right. because like, even for the best writers, only a small percentage of what they ever come up with will ever even see the screen. But we hear about actors and actresses all the time with numerous nominations or wins and even directors who have been nominated six or seven times. So to actually win three Oscars for writing is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe in part because of his stature in the industry, although he obviously hadn't won all three at that point, he had only won two, Chayefsky was around a lot more, and he was a lot more involved in the filming of this movie than most writers usually are. And he was always around the set and, and to give it suggestions and advice as filming was going on. The film ended up being nominated for 10 Academy Awards, winning four, including for Chayefsky for, uh, lead, uh, and also for lead actor and actress for Peter Finch and Faye Dunaway, as well as Best Supporting Actors for Beatrice Strait, who holds the record for shortest amount of screen time for any acting Oscar winner at <laughs> five minutes and two seconds. Not quite sure what they were thinking with this one. Anyway, it is number 66 and 64 on AFI's Top 100 Movies lists. It has the number 19 quote on the movie quotes list with I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, which we'll hear a little bit more of the actual person saying it later on. Network is about a veteran news anchor named Howard Beale, whose ratings have been slipping, so the network decides to fire him. However, on one of his last broadcasts, he calmly announces that he's going to kill himself on national television. The attention he gets from this and his ever-increasing descent into madness turn him into a messianic figure, and the network, as they do, tries to capitalize by basing an entire show around his new persona. Everything seems to be going great, well, except for Beale's producer and old friend who's concerned about his friend's mental state, until Beale, in one of his televised rants, attacks the sacred cow of network's biggest investors. (laughs) Zach... What did you think of Network? I love this movie. This is only the second time I've seen it. I was a very late comer to Network. I think I only saw it for the first time about two or three years ago. Um, I always knew the quote, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I mean, that's been parodied countless times. But when you actually see it in context, it's just it's brilliant. This, this is 
maybe one of the top five satires of all time, whether you're talking about political or media-wise, because um, it's just so deadpan the entire time. Nobody in the cast is kind of in on the joke, you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, uh, it, the cast from top to bottom is incredible, too, and it's it's also not as far-fetched as it may seem. <laughs> because, it's not at all. Because networks are so ruthless, studios are so ruthless, they will push the limit as far as they can if it means a couple more people watch their show than the than the other show that's on at the same time slot. And I think my favorite part of the movie is the relationship between Faye Dunaway and William Holden and William Holden who we haven't seen since Sunset Boulevard and he still got it, man. <laughs> it's it's been over uh uh Sunset Boulevard was in 1950, so this is 26 years later. And this is the first time we're talking about him on this podcast again. And he still kind of plays the same character as he did. Like, he's so gullible. He's so ready to just ditch everything in his life for a woman. In this case, he's playing the opposite role, where in Sunset Boulevard, he was the young buck, and he got seduced by Norma Desmond. Yeah, Norma Desmond. But in this one... He's the old man taking advantage. Well, well, not really taking advantage. They're kind of <laughs> they're kind of yeah, they're, equal they're players in this other. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for Faye Dunaway, and I just cracked up at how they get away with these jokes nowadays. That the um, now that the Hayes Code is just done and dusted by this point. It's not, it's a it's a relic, and that it takes her like three seconds to come when they're in the sack. <laughs> And the way he takes her through the relationship and his like really good monologue towards the end, where he's like, "Well, this is the final act. This is the this is the this is where we break up and <laughs> go back to the wife." And he just it, he's narrating it as he goes, but it's not through voiceover. He, it, but it still works. Yeah, I love it, man. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Let's start there actually, because for me, that's the weakest part of the film. So that's oh really? Inter- yeah, okay. for me, the the relationship between the two of them, the affair. I'm just not entirely sure what purpose it serves in the overall in the overall structure of the of the film. So for me, that's that's the weakest part. It just doesn't seem to really go anywhere. It's just this affair that happens and then it ends and then they're both kind of bitter, but it doesn't really affect anything else that they do. Uh, so well, I think again, it speaks to the the bleakness of the '70s in filmmaking and the movie overall. How they don't run off together and fall in love. They're just in it for the mechanical operation of just getting sex from each other. I guess, yeah, it speaks to the broader theme, I guess, but not, it doesn't tie into the rest of the story as neatly as I would have liked. But that's that's just a, a small okay. thing for me. That's the weakest part of the film. But in my mind, overall, this might be the you were talking about Chinatown earlier. For my mind, this might be the greatest screenplay of all time. Uh, oh, as, okay. as a writer, it's just one of those films that it's at the same time incredibly inspiring and depressing because you're just not <laughs> sure it's possible to ever write anything this good. It's kind of like that story you talked about <laughs> Steven Spielberg uh, when we were talking about uh, Lawrence of Arabia, how it almost right. ended him as a filmmaker because he was just so overwhelmed by the uh, by by the, how daunting the task it would be to make a film that great, and for me as a writer, I I almost feel the same way watching this movie. The, <laughs> this script is just so incredible. 
but it, you know, it was is there a movie or or a book or a TV show or anything that more accurately predicted the future than this movie? I don't know if mm. I can think of one. He he saw exactly where mass media was going, as you said. Right. I mean, it's it's not that far fetched, really, from short of them assassinating their own employee at the very end of the movie. That's <laughs> everything else is pretty much the kind of thing we, we see in television and mass media today. I mean, the artificiality of reality TV, for instance, mm-hmm. the, it's just, um, it's, it's really an, an inc- incredible movie all, all around and, and very prescient, probably the most prescient film I think I've ever seen. Yeah, we were talking about the prescience of um, Stanley Kubrick in Space Odyssey, but we're still 20 years out from the ad- the real advent of reality TV when we're talking about 1976. Like I don't I don't know when the real world premiered, but it was sometime in the mid to late 90s. And yeah, this was and 20 years <laughs> out from news networks like CNN really becoming a big thing and then later Fox News, which obviously this would really be uh, uh, preempting Fox News in many ways too. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. I think it's such a cynical film too. Uh, like I love that that scene where um, there's the heated argument amongst all these supposed Marxists that are just arguing just about having that, their yeah. contracts and residuals, and they get into a big fight about it for for the Mao Zedong hour. <laughs> That's the name of the TV show, and yet they're <laughs> arguing about the residuals and contracts. So amazing, but so cynical. Yeah, it just so shows how hypocritical those kind of groups are. Because <laughs> I mean, everybody wants money. I mean, <laughs> nobody's going to refuse money. So yeah, once you once you make a communist famous, they're gonna take it and run with it. <laughs> they're still gonna spout their message, but they're gonna get paid all the way to the bank, and they're gonna be laughing the whole way. Yeah, yeah. But we haven't. Uh, t- the thing that really kicks this off, obviously, is Howard Beale's character and how he basically goes insane. And that first great rant that he has when he comes in out of the rain and he's still wearing his trench coat and he just marches into the <laughs> studio and, and the producers are like, well, just keep the camera on him, keep the camera on him. And this is part of the speech that he gives at that point. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Sit up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this go out? I know it goes to Louisville and Atlanta. We're not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about it. It's so good. And uh, interesting that right before all this uh, COVID stuff happened, the shutdown of everything happened, Brian Cranston had been starring in a stage version of Network on Broadway in New York City, playing the Howard Beale part. How amazing would that have been? 
to see oh, Brian Cranston in the, that role on stage. That's just perfect casting. That would have been fantastic. Oh, yeah. I would definitely pay good money to see that. It's it's just overall the film, not to rave on and on about the screenplay, but it's it's so well done just how gradually the insanity develops throughout the movie. It starts out and it seems like you're just watching this normal kind of TV news network. But by the time near the end that the network executives are just casually discussing whether or not they should assassinate their own network star, it somehow seems like a natural development of everything that's gone on before in the movie almost. It's just yeah. that's how gradually the insanity builds. I, lo- I love it. Yeah, and as you said, the, <laughs> the how casual they are <laughs> about it. They just have no regard for human life whatsoever. It's just ratings, ratings, ratings. That is the bottom line, and it is... Yeah, we said it, I think, five times now. It's a great satire of media. <laughs> yeah, and, and also just the world in general. Ratings, 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 but also money being the be-all and end-all, and that is fully encapsulated in this amazing speech by, uh, by Ned Beatty right here. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It, you can't really fit the whole speech in, but it's just this is when Howard Beale's character sort of has his come to Jesus moment with the network executives that are trying to basically scare him into taking their side, which they successfully do and undermine their entire product. Again, cynical. This is the 70s, this is what we're looking at. But I, I absolutely adore this film. So, switching gears 180 degrees once more. <laughs> this is the 70s for you, man. You get something for everybody. Most people on planet Earth only need to hear the first three or four notes of this theme to recognize the corresponding movie. And if this song doesn't give you goosebumps, you might want to check to see if you have a pulse. That's right, it's Rocky! It's directed by John D. Avildsen, and is written by, and of course, starring Sylvester Stallone as the American icon Rocky Balboa. He's one of the most recognizable figures in Philadelphia, and he's a fictional character. I don't know if that's praise for Rocky or an indictment of the city of Philly. Jury's still out on that one. It's one of the most well-known classic rags-to-riches movies ever made. Rocky's a small-time boxer and low-level enforcer for the mob, yet he's very sensitive and soft-spoken. It's kind of impossible to not draw parallels between Rocky and Terry Malloy from On the Waterfront, Marlon Brando's character. But while Malloy never gets that second chance, Rocky does, and boy does he take advantage of it. You don't get five sequels in a spinoff franchise from an unhappy ending. When the guy who's supposed to fight for the World Heavyweight Championship against Apollo Creed, he drops out of the title fight, the championship opportunity falls to lowly Rocky. 
While it's supposed to be an easy tune-up match against an inferior fighter for Creed, Rocky vows to go the distance. With the help of trainer Mickey, played by Burgess Meredith, the love of Adrian, played by Talia Shire from Godfather fame, and the insistence of Pauly, played by Burt Young from Chinatown fame, Rocky goes the distance and gets a well-earned draw against a seemingly unstoppable Apollo Creed. Rocky had a budget of $1 million and went on to become one of the biggest sleeper hits of all time, grossing $225 million in its first box office run. It catapulted Sly Stallone to superstardom. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, winning three, including Best Picture and Best Director. It's number 57 on the AFI list. Rocky is the number seven hero. It's number four on the Cheers list. And Gonna Fly Now is the number 58 song. Martin, your opinion on Rocky. First of all, this really fits in with a bunch of the other 70s movies that we're doing in that we're focusing a lot on characters that are kind of the forgotten people in society and the ones that live under the radar. That's exactly what the character of Rocky is about. And even though this is technically a boxing movie, there's very little boxing until the very end of this movie. And so it's really just this movie about Rocky, the person, and and his internal struggle to basically find his own self, self-worth more than anything else. I think it's it's so weird that this is that this is a movie that became such a massive franchise. I guess that's mm-hmm. the danger maybe of having an ending where you don't give the audience exactly what they were hoping for is that <laughs> they'll come back to see it the next time, which has happened because because of course he loses at the end of this movie, but um, he does but in a way he wins and aren't we all winners? But uh, right. <laughs> but I guess that's what brought them back for a second one and then at that point the train just couldn't be stopped. It's uh, it's a really slow build watching it again. The the inciting incident comes a long way in. Like we don't even hear the name Apollo Creed until about twenty five minutes into the movie. Right. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't really drag though, just because Rocky and the way Sylvester Stallone plays him is just such a a downtrodden but sympathetic, likable character that it, it still works and it still keeps you going until you get to the bit about Apollo Creed and then possible fight and what he's actually going to be building towards for the rest of the movie. It's really a great movie, by far the best of the entire Rocky series. And mm. it's, it was kind of all downhill from there until uh, until Creed, the first Creed. But um, although, you know, I guess in Rocky Four he did single-handedly end the Cold War, but uh, <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> if I can change, you, you can change. change. <laughs> but anyway, aside from that, this is this is definitely the hands down the the best movie of the franchise. Absolutely, you kind of forget as you know as time has gone on how, like you said, how little boxing is actually a part of this movie. This is a character piece. This isn't a quote-unquote, boxing movie, even though it set the standard for every boxing movie to come afterward. And it's it, it feels like an indie movie. It feels like a really just deep, deep inch, uh, look at this, this poor guy that just almost made it but never made it and never looks like he's going to get out. He's, like, kind of um, stupid, for lack of a better yeah. word. And... Um, you know, he's going after this, you know, 
for all her um, acting chops, Tilia Shire is a bit of a homely girl. And but I mean, he wants her more than anybody just because he feels like he has an emotional connection with her. And you know, it's just, it's just this humble girl that works at a pet store, who lives with her kind of abusive brother, and it's really a, it's really a, a romance at the end of the day, more than a sports movie, I would say. And one of my favorite scenes of the entire movie is that awkward scene where he brings her back to his place and you can obviously tell that she's a virgin and, you know, he's like shoveling trash off of his couch and taking his shirt off, trying to get laid. And it's really awkward, but also kind of sweet in a way. And, you know, he decides that, you know, he's a good guy and he decides, you know, if she doesn't want to, then I won't. And... Yeah, it, it's... Uh, Although he does really kind of about... stop her from leaving a couple of times. But, yeah, it's true. Yeah. She doesn't. She also doesn't really seem like she wants to leave. She's just... She's kind of paralyzed in herself at that point. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought that was a tremendous scene and maybe one of the best scenes in the entire Rocky franchise because the Rocky franchise is kind of centered around the relationship between Rocky and Adrian. Yeah, and how about the... the change in roles for Talia Shire between this and The Godfather, Mm. where she's playing this vivacious and loud and yelling all the time, boisterous person um, who basically can't control her emotions because they're all over the place, to this character, which is the exact opposite, where she's really meek and never lets her emotions show and barely speaks at all. Just a total change. She's a completely different kind of role, showing Talia Shire's uh, acting chops in her range. Right. And Burt Young was amazing, too. Uh, He had a really nice career for himself. Um, A little interesting fact about how he got into character for Pauly is that he wanted to make himself, the actor wanted to make himself as uncomfortable as possible so that he could convey this, like, meanness and this kind of dirtiness that that Polly really was. So what Burt Young would do is he would dip his hands in turpentine to make his hands all kind of tight and arthritic. It's not a good life choice, <laughs> but it's a great acting choice. And uh, he would kind of like smear garlic all over his neck to, and leave it for a couple days to make him smell bad. And, and he would put padding under his clothes to make him look kind of like lethargic and fat. And he would lean over all the time and kind of stick his gut out it was a really committed acting performance that needs to be mentioned because he really went full um, uh, method actor for this one. And it, it worked. He, he's just, he's such an unlikable character. It just, the character is just an awful person all around with basically no redeeming qualities. No. And for that to be the buddy of the, of the hero of the story is, is really interesting. I think uh, the other character, of course, that's amazing is is Mickey, who's just amazing as the mentor character. He definitely comes from the, the tough love school of mentors. <laughs> but uh, Burgess Meredith, too, did a great job. And he's, he's an actor whose career actually had been kind of derailed by the whole um, House uh, Un-American Activities Committee stuff. He was one of the people who was accused and named and dropped out of Hollywood for a little while. So it's good to see him get a comeback in this movie. And that scene, uh, for me, possibly the best scene in the movie, that scene where Mickey comes over to ask to be Rocky's manager 
and Rocky kind of gets mad and sends him away at first. That scene is just heartbreaking. And Burgess mm-hmm. Meredith's work in that scene is just oh, some of the uh, some of the most heartbreaking work I've seen. Just unbelievable. Yeah, and I, I think people forget about Rocky One because there's so many Rockies to watch. I mean, I know a lot of people whose favorite one is oh yeah, the one with Mr. T, <laughs> or the one with Ivan Drago, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> but yeah, but this is a really damn good drama. And we think of Rocky today as this gigantic franchise that, you know, is just all about boxing. I mean, the entire first 20, 30 minutes of Rocky three was all boxing. And, you know, I can remember that because I, I do like those movies. They're just not great movies. They're entertaining. Exactly. Movies, except for Rocky five. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll just pretend that one doesn't <laughs> exist. But uh, yeah, you're right. This wasn't, this was an indie movie. It wasn't a boxing movie. And you can even see that at the end of the movie where, that the final fight, the sound actually isn't really very good. It's like they hadn't... Well, qu- neither is the boxing. Yeah, no, the boxing isn't good either, but they hadn't quite even figured out technically how to make a good boxing movie yet at this point in 1976 because right. the sound is kind of crappy and the punches, some of them you hear all right, but then there's like muffled speaking as Apollo Creed's trying to talk to him, but all you can really hear is mumbling, and it's it's clear that yeah, this this definitely isn't a boxing movie. And, and how about such a ballsy move by Stallone when they were making this after he wrote the script to refuse to sell it unless he could play the lead role? And all yeah, of these. And he was, he was a starving, struggling yeah, he actor. He was a nobody. He was like, a nobody. Yeah. He was living on a bench at one point when he was yeah. writing the script. And all these, you know, all these Hollywood producers and studios, they. They were trying to pressure him and pressure him to sell it to him, and they wanted, like, Robert Redford or Burt Reynolds or somebody like that to play <laughs> the, the role. And that's got to be one of the great what-ifs in Hollywood history. What if, what if Stallone, as a starving person, had caved to the pressure to get that easy paycheck? And, had, mm-hmm. and somebody like Robert Redford had played this role. It just wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have been the same at all. No, it seems like Robert Redford was up for every major <laughs> role that came star. around. People loved him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I can't I can't imagine Robert Redford as this like kind of dumb Philadelphia boxer with the like the I can't I just can't imagine him stepping into those shoes no. because as much as I like Robert Redford, he's not a uh he's not a method actor. And I couldn't imagine step, imagine him stepping into the shoes of Rocky Balboa. <laughs> I wouldn't have worked at all. No. So that's it for part one of the 70s podcast on our Century Series. We hope you come back and join us for part two. I don't know how you could listen to this one and not come back for Star Wars, Halloween, and Apocalypse Now. That's how you do a teaser, buddy. (laughs) So you can always find us at unsolicitedfilmreviews.com. Follow us on Facebook at unsolicitedfilmreviews. Follow us on Instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. You can follow me personally at Zach T. Miller on Instagram. You can follow me at J. Martin Cook with Cook with an E at Instagram. And we will see you next time on the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast Century Series 1970s Part 2. You've been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook, with original music by Martin Cook and original artwork by Dan Ohm. Sponsored by No One.
We'll see you next time.